Welcome to the Pain Podcast, presented by Le Peuple Scientifique. We are thrilled to bring you a platform that unites clinicians, researchers, and pain advocates in sharing a pursuit, understanding pain. In this series of podcasts, we aim to bridge the gap between scientific knowledge and practical applications in the field of pain. Our episodes will feature insightful discussions with leading experts, exploring the latest research findings, innovative treatments and emerging trends in the realm of pain. Whether you are a healthcare professional seeking evidence-based practices, a researcher diving into the depths of the pain mechanisms, or a dedicated advocate striving to improve the lives of individuals in pain, you are welcome. Check out our website, get confident and competent in treating pain. Start today. I'm Bart van Buchem. I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist based in Amsterdam region. With me today, Le Pup Scientifique, we've got Jane Chalmers. Jane is here in Adelaide. I'm with her at the moment. Uh, a senior lecturer in um, pain science. Yes, you are. Yeah, correct. And um, she did a PhD uh, on pelvic pain research. And I got this small little idea that we might <laughs> run into things like that, right? Or everything on pelvic pain related. Uh, issues. So, um, first of all, welcome, Jane. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it was a pleasure. <laughs> um, we're looking forward. So, all right, Jane, there we go. So, what excites you at the moment? What excites me? Well, um, I think my sort of talk at the master sessions is something that really excites me. Mm -hmm. um, so, my research is all in pelvic pain, um, and unfortunately, the kind of pelvic pain space I feel mm. like is. 20, maybe 30 years behind other pain conditions like mm. back pain. So we don't have too much, I guess, um, experimental data in pelvic pain, which is quite interesting. Um, and I'm starting to get really excited by the concept of, um, I guess, understanding a little bit more about um, the concept of safety and danger or threat in our pelvis based on what our pelvis represents. Um, so I guess at the moment what excites me is this idea that our pelvis is this area that we really need to protect. And um, mm. I'm excited by that concept because I think it fits in really nicely with areas of science outside of pain. So Charles Darwin kind of talks about this theory of our, our sole purpose in life being mm. to reproduce. And I guess with that in mind, um, think about that in the context of pelvic pain, it makes sense that then our pelvis is a really important area for us. So I guess at the moment that kind of excites me, thinking about, yeah, I guess that evolutionary drive that we maybe have and the role that that might play in mm. someone's experience with pelvic pain. So would that be similar to all like other musculoskeletal uh, conditions, for example? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's, I think, unique and context dependent. Mm. Um, you know, Lorimer often talks about this concept of a violinist who has an injury on either their left or their right side. And mm. um, the fact that an injury to the left side is much more catastrophic than it is on the right, because our left hand, when you're playing the violin, is the one that, you know, you use to, to play the notes. Oh, fair. Yeah. So the context mm. of that is that it's kind of much more important to that person and it, it's 
potentially more threatening if something goes wrong there. So you're, you're referring to the more intimate parts of the body and what's, what's the burden? What does you feel like the burden for maybe even clinicians to maybe to underestimate or even feeling it really hard to, to bring, it, bring this subject on as a part of the therapeutic process? Yeah, I, I mean, it's super challenging. Um, and I recognize that the challenges are not going away anytime mm. soon. We find it always really hard, I think, to talk about pelvic stuff, regardless of what it is, because like you say, you know, it's quite an intimate area. So I guess that's probably one of the biggest challenges is starting that conversation for clinicians to actually, yeah, just ask their patients um, what's happening in that pelvic area. What are, what are some of the functions that are happening? Mm. Are there dysfunctions? Are they experiencing pain? And I think starting that conversation is the biggest challenge because it is a, a lot of people find it a difficult conversation to have. Yeah, so what would you feel like, what, what is the clinician's role? In that, so let's say you 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 feel like as a clinician find it hard to start the conversation, but even before starting the conversation, what will be the first thing you should do to start that journey on feeling more more comfortable in oh. discussing it? I don't think there's a I don't think there's a magic solution. I think my suggestion would just be start. <laughs> yeah. So what would be what would be an easy question, for example, just to start with? Um, an easy question, I think, if you think that someone maybe has got um, potentially pelvic pain, I think it's always important to just ask outright, you know, are you having, experiencing any pain in your pelvis? But being really explicit about saying, you know, um, people who menstruate, you might ask about period pain. Um, but for everyone, you might also ask about sort of bowel and urinary function as well. Do they have any, um, any pain when they're going to the toilet? other things like pain with sex. We know that all of these things are really common, so they're really good places to start to ask people about. Yeah, so, but is it also like a part as a clinician to start asking these questions yourself, for example? Is that? Absolutely. I would argue that it is our role as clinicians um, to ask these questions. I think particularly in Australia, um, you don't need a referral from a GP or anything to see a physio. So mm. often someone will, will turn up on our doorstep not having seen a GP or anyone else who might screen for these things. Mm. So it is really important that we have the skills to ask some of these questions. Doesn't mean we yeah. need to necessarily have the skills to treat it, uh -huh. but absolutely to identify it. I think it's, it's essential, really important. So where would you feel like the, so from a physiotherapist perspective, so you set boundaries on, on where you feel like your field or the domain is finishing, but as it looks like, it's more uh, an area where very similar to musculoskeletal. Right? So, what will be the what will be the most obvious similarities between, for example, seeing someone with treating someone with with let's say neck pain or low back pain, and another person with let's say pelvic pain and perhaps issues with period pains and pain with uh, intercourse, for example. So what will be the similarities there? Lots of similarities. In terms of, 
I guess if you're thinking about persistent pain, mm. there are lots of similarities, for example, between persistent neck pain and persistent limb pain in mm. terms of, you know, some of the biological processes that we see, the, the kind of um, psychological comorbidities that we see, some of those social contributions, and it's no different for pelvic pain. So in terms of persistent pelvic pain, I think there are a lot of those similar processes going on. They're not too dissimilar from other persistent pain populations that we might see. I think it's just a lot more taboo to talk about. Yeah, so what would be the, the fit with the clinicians versus the patient or to create a safe environment, I reckon? Is it because when it's got more intimate or it might be distressing, people probably not necessarily disclaim, well, actually, I've got these issues. And, um, and I think I heard you saying it takes, some, takes people like years and years to, to for even diagnosis all the way from when the, the issue started, the problem started, it's like could be years. Yes. So how, what can we do to reduce the, the time in between onset issues or problems to diagnosis and probably treatment that, that would be appropriate? I think the, the biggest thing is starting the conversation, you know, mm. asking patients, screening for, for particularly pain and dysfunction mm. um, with the pelvis and its functions. Um, research that I've done, which isn't published yet, we're just preparing the manuscript, um, has looked at what some of the barriers are for people to seek help when they've got pelvic pain. Mm. And it was really interesting because one of the things that we found is that about 50% of women with pelvic pain report that they feel embarrassed talking to healthcare providers about their pelvic pain and the potential dysfunction they might have. Mm. But even though they're embarrassed, they don't perceive it as a barrier to them receiving help, which tells us uh, that it's maybe something they feel embarrassed about, but mm. they still understand the importance of talking about it, even if they feel a little bit funny doing it. But I think as clinicians, that tells us then that it is really important that we have this conversation, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. I think it's really important to start the conversation to screen for some of those problems. And then I guess if you identify that someone has pelvic pain or dysfunction and you don't feel qualified as a clinician to deal with it, then to engage a multidisciplinary team who can help this yeah. patient. What will be effective screening? So, so what will be the questions you need to ask? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there are lots of things you can ask for. The pelvis is a very, very complex area. Um, but I guess some of the things that were particularly important are, uh, that are particularly important to screen for are things like pain. Um, in particular, people with people who menstruate asking about pain, not only when they're menstruating, but at other times throughout their cycles, because we know that some women get things like ovulation mm. pain. Um, but then thinking about the other functions that the pelvis has for us. So again, that sort of that bowel and bladder function as well is really important. So in terms of bladder, pain is an important thing, but also um, what's it like when they initiate the flow of urine? Is it stop, start? Um, do they have any incontinence? Similar questions with the bowel, asking about incontinence. How easy is it for them to open their bowels? Is there any pain? Are they straining? Mm. Um, 
And then I think it's really important to ask about sexual function as well. So pain is important, but also in the wider context, it's also important to think about you know, levels of arousal and libido and those sorts of things. So starting to get more into that, um, I guess, the, the sort of psychological side of things as well. So would you argue that, that even a person who comes in with, um, is, yeah, you've seen them for low back pain, for example, but you actually find out there's more in they tend to have pain in the pelvis area. You should run this series of questions sort of to, <gasps> well, we can have a couple of seconds. <laughs> <laughs> sort of to, to ask the questions and, and starting from there on, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of a, like you said, it's a responsibility. Yes, big responsibility. And if you're not doing it, you might not do the right thing, just not talking it. Well, yeah. I think that's a good take home. You get this, this idea of, I think, stigma. Could you give a bit of a historical view on that? How that somewhere, where did it get gone wrong? Uh, how many hours do you have? Oh, uh, just trying to give me, <laughs> just uh, give me enough, just no. to feel, just to feel a bit embarrassed myself <laughs> as a man. <laughs> Look, I think, um, I think there's so many layers to where the sort of stigma has started from. Mm. I think one of the um, one of the problems that we've seen historically is that medicine traditionally is a, a, a male dominated field. Mm. Um, back in the day women couldn't be medical doctors um, and I think that's always presented a barrier because if if you're not someone who can experience a similar process to someone else I think it becomes really hard to understand and maybe empathise what that, that person is going through. Mm. So I think the fact that we've historically had male doctors has then made it really complex to then diagnose female-specific things. And pelvic pain can happen in men, but it's much more common in women. So I think um, you know, having this really complex presentation historically, the male doctors were like, we don't really know what to do with you. You must be crazy, there's nothing that we can find, we'll just diagnose you with hysteria. Um, and I think unfortunately that kind of stigma still persists mm. a little bit. Um, even though we know that you know, the medical field isn't so male dominated, um, I think some of that historical um, perception of pelvic pain and it all just being that hysterical women, I think unfortunately we still see that today. So what will be the are there any, uh, would you feel like there are signs of improvement uh, of this is, because I feel like it's, it's been for centuries, <laughs> this is a story of centuries, so but now we got in the 21st century and we're sort of starting to acknowledge a bit more of this I reckon, not sure whether it, it's there, probably not, not finished, but what are the good signs of getting more acknowledgement for this? I think you're so right, like I think we're heading in the right direction. I think kind of this wave of feminism and understanding um, women's experiences um, and a real push for equality I think has really helped women's mm. health overall. But in particular for pelvic pain I think people have been lobbying pretty hard and pushing pretty hard to make people recognise that actually this is a massive problem that affects lots of women. In particular, in Australia, the Australian government has just thrown 
a lot of money towards endometriosis research. And endometriosis is one of the sort of leading diagnoses that someone might get when they experience pelvic pain. We know that around one in nine Australian women will be diagnosed with endometriosis. When you think about that, it's, that's an insane number of women diagnosed mm. with this. And it costs us huge amounts of money in healthcare. And I think it's a combination of people lobbying to say, hey, like women's health is really important, pelvic pain is really important, mm. combined with then, you know, people in higher places, politicians, the government going, actually, this is costing us a lot of money, we need to deal with it. So particularly in Australia, heaps more people know about endometriosis these days than they would have five, 10, 15 years ago, which I think is a really great step in the right direction. So would it be where, I'm just getting myself around with, with the idea of male doctors and therapists versus female. So what, what do you think like, so male, for example, male therapists in general, generally male therapists and clinicians or doctors, are they the right? Is it likely they will push it forward as part of the, the movement? Do they have to change more than the female therapists and clinicians? Wow, that's a great question. I don't think the, the responsibility is necessarily on male clinicians or female clinicians. I think, it, I think the responsibility is on us as healthcare professionals, regardless of sex, regardless of gender. Mm. I think it's actually a problem that needs to be recognised more widely, regardless of yeah, what our sex or gender is as a clinician. Mm. Um, I mean, I think at the moment it's particularly women lobbying for women's health conditions. Um, but of course that's not a blanket, you know, it's not that men don't care about women and they don't care about women's health, I just think it's predominantly women who are pushing for it at the moment. I'd love to see more men push for it and recognise the importance of having healthy women as well as having healthy men. Yeah. Um, but I think it's the responsibility is on all of us. Which brings us actually to male pelvic pain, which is a, as far as I know, pretty unknown territory in acknowledgement as well. <laughs> no, Maybe. what do you, th I, I mean, men are great at seeking healthcare generally, especially when, not, no, I'm joking. Not for that. <laughs> no, men are traditionally not good at seeking medical help. And I think that's even more complex when the medical condition is a pelvic condition. So yes, men can definitely also get pelvic pain and I think the complexity of them seeking help for it is, is has uh, different challenges, but I recognise that it's also challenging for men. Um, Would men have different challenges than women um, have when pelvic pain is the problem or the health problem? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's not the, like you say, the sort of centuries of, um, the stigma and the normalisation of women's pelvic pain in men. It, it's not, we, we haven't seen that traditionally for the last you know, hundreds of years. So I think that's quite a unique challenge for women. Mm -hmm. But I think the challenge that is fairly um, consistent regardless of sex or gender is this idea that we just don't talk about our pelvis. We don't, we don't 
understand our pelvis, we don't have words to describe it when it's dysfunctional. Mm. Um, so I think that is quite a unique challenge and I recognise that also, you know, men will struggle with that too. Yeah, would there be, would there be differences in between uh, men and women pelvic pain treatment? Yeah, yeah. What would be the differences like? They're massive. And I guess it depends on okay. what we identify as some of those contributing factors. Mm -hmm. um, but particularly for men, a really common problem that we see is um, what's called chronic prostatitis, chronic pelvic pain syndrome, which is pain generally in the region of the prostate, but with no kind of um, infection or pathology that might be driving it. So it's, you know, it's similar to like mm. a non-specific low back pain but in the pelvis, yeah. women get similar things. You know, women can be diagnosed with chronic pelvic pain syndrome, but uh, we also see women with things like endometriosis, which would be managed very differently because we know that there's pathology that's happening in the pelvis that can not only contribute to someone's pain experience, but also influence things like infertility. Yeah. Um, so often things like endometriosis are managed very surgically, whereas the sort of Chronic pelvic pain syndromes might be managed um, at more conservative, from a more conservative approach. And j just to, and I, from my memory, hearing you talk about the effect of surgery, results in surgery with endometriosis, they're not really great in terms of the long term. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're quite shocking actually. Yeah, so some Australian work showed um, that about one in five women who have a laparoscopy for endometriosis report either that the lap didn't affect their pain mm. or it made their pain worse. So what would be, um, uh, how would you describe the strategy in, in, from a therapeutic approach? Which approach would you likely see in, or evidence-based <laughs> at least, um, will be more likely to choose from. So would it be education, exposure, sorts of things? So what would be the, the more common strategic planning for people with these issues? I think my caveat always has to be that surgery has a role. So, you know, yeah. I don't want to say to everyone, throw the baby out with the bathwater, no one gets surgery. Mm. Um, and I think that's because we know that surgery can be helpful for those fertility outcomes. But in terms of conservative management, I don't think we at the moment necessarily do that particularly well. And I think that's the space where we need to be working in and doing more. And in terms of what the evidence suggests we should be doing, um, unfortunately it's still fairly sparse. We don't mm. have lots of high quality research um, in terms of treating pelvic pain. But I guess it's those key principles of what you would do in anyone else who presents with persistent pain. So looking at things like self-management strategies, what are some of those, I guess, lifestyle factors that we can address? Um, so that's sort of one area. Um, that, that idea of, of exercise and, and movement and a bit of exposure is, is always helpful. And again, we've got pretty limited evidence, but all the evidence that we do have, have always suggests that moving is better than not moving. Mm. So any movement that we can encourage is always really important. And then of course, education. I think we've got limited evidence to support the role of education in pelvic pain. 
um, in terms of empirical evidence, mm. but the anecdotal evidence and what um, clinicians are telling us they are using and they are finding helpful education is one of those massive things. And it makes sense because that goes hand in hand with the other conservative treatments that we might use. Yes. So how would, how would, for example, if you, you got education, and I think it's the anatomy, it's sometimes it's without or with or without pharmaceutical uh, applications or potentially surgery, but then that doesn't stop the journey, obviously. So most of the people benefit from education generally on pain, on, on anatomy, and then exposure. So getting back to, so it would, be, would make sense to me, like if you have a shoulder issue, you start moving your shoulder or something that relates to the shoulder. How would that relate to the pelvis? Yeah, this is a great question because it's not like you can sort of selectively identify different bits of your pelvis to move. Yeah. Um, and we don't necessarily see the same um, sorts of movement pattern changes in pelvic pain that we might see with shoulder pain or back pain or whatever. Yeah. But one of the things that we do see is um, pelvic floor dysfunction will often go hand in hand with pelvic pain. So engaging someone in a really comprehensive pelvic floor assessment and then some tips on how to get a healthy pelvic floor based on what is found on assessment. So if it's weak, we might look at strengthening. If it's tight, which is often the case, we might look at down training the pelvic floor, so encouraging the pelvic floor to relax. But I guess more broadly, what we see is a lot of people disengaging from just general physical activity. So, you know, it's similar to what we might see in someone with any other type of persistent pain. Hmm. They start doing less and less and less. Yeah. And our role, I guess, is to encourage that person to start doing more and more and more of gradually. Course, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I see that, that. But then you need, as a clinician, you need some specific skills. You need a skill set that's different to what you would expect from one who's really comfortable with seeing people with shoulder pain, for example. So um, depending on where you are in the world, there is specialized training, I guess, here in Australia. There is pelvic, specialist pelvic pain or pelvic specialist, I guess, yeah. Yeah. I know it's in the Netherlands. It's got the pelvic floor specialists. Um, it's not, but would you, um, would you say you have to be a specialist to work in the area? Absolutely not. No, I think there's plenty of stuff that um, someone who hasn't specialised in um, pelvic health can, can do. Um, of course, someone who hasn't done specialised pelvic floor training should not be doing a pelvic floor assessment. I think that goes without saying. Um, so you may need to refer that person on to get mm. a, that, that thorough pelvic floor assessment done, but I think you could you could definitely think about some of those principles that we would apply to any persistent pain population. So mm. your education, you can think about how you might tailor that specific to the pelvis, um, but also the similar sorts of processes of just physical activity, getting moving, that graded exposure. Mm. Um, you don't need to be, you don't need to have specialist pelvic floor training in order to encourage someone to engage in walking, running, getting back to the gym, anything that's going to help them to move. Mm. I think that's uh, another great take home, I guess, encouraging people just to ask the questions, I guess. 
if you feel comfortable, just move on with it and, and see how far you can go and consult a pelvic floor specialist when you feel like this is getting too much detailed or more specific where people fit in a different, well, probably with, fit with uh, another healthcare professional in a better way, yeah. So yeah. it's interesting, yeah. I think it's great just sort of to level the, make create, not creating a burden for special um, speciality. So this is something that happened over time. So you have to be a specialist and especially adopt the specialist. And then you turn up like, oh, actually I got some issues in my pelvis. And then, oh, you need to, you need to move to the other, to the other office yes. to ask that. And I think that's not a, not a great thing to do though. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to leave it with this um, for now. So we had a, a, a lovely 30 minute actually. Thank uh, you. Time flies. It's very insightful. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. <laughs>